a lot of what creates pleasure, happiness, or meaning in our lives sometimes has to do with things like suffering. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 62 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Demetrius Igalatis from the University of Connecticut's Department of Anthropology. He'll discuss his research into the Kavadi, an extreme ritual involving pain and suffering, which not only has no discernible long-term effects on its participants, it may actually improve their social status and psychological well-being. Here's Demetrius Zigalatis. Hello, I'm Demetrius Zigalatis. I am an anthropologist and a cognitive scientist. I originally come from Greece, but have lived in seven different countries. I have now been in the United States for five and a half years, and I work at the University of Connecticut. My background is both in anthropology and in cognitive science. So I did my PhD at Queen's University, Belfast, at the Institute of Cognition and Culture. And I also did part of my uh, graduate studies at Aarhus University, Denmark, where I later became a faculty member. And later, I went on to become the director of a research institute in the Czech Republic at Masaryk University, which is called uh, Levina. It's the laboratory for the experimental research on religion. And this was the first institute uh, in the world to be exclusively dedicated to the experimental research on religion. And in fact, this study originated when I was uh, at Masaryk University. And this, was, this is something beautiful about the, the scientific process and the way the scientific community should, in principle, operate. So what happened was a colleague of mine sent me a paper uh, that Sami Khan had uh, co-authored and CC'd the author. And I responded with some criticism, uh, some methodological criticism. And Sami wrote back, and he was, he was very open to discussing this. And so we, we started a very interesting email exchange, which eventually led to me uh, inviting him to give a talk at my institute, and eventually led to us applying and getting a grant that allowed us to, uh, to buy the equipment and recruit the team to do the study. So we ended up working together. And we went to Mauritius, and that's how this uh, study came about. While we might refer to our daily self-care routines as morning rituals, most of us nonetheless recognize that cultural rituals occur within the context of the traditions of a particular community. Some, like rites of passage, may provide access to such communities, while others may symbolically reaffirm our membership in them. We begin our conversation by asking Demetrius to explain what rituals are and how the extreme rituals he studies differ from our more typical ones. So by definition, ritual doesn't have any directly obvious uh, goals, or at least the, the goals are disconnected from the means. Meaning if I dance around in a, in a rain dance, uh, there's no direct connection between my movement and rain falling from the sky. At the same time, rituals are universal. We really see ritual in every society we've ever known, past or present. So this creates a puzzle. Why is this behavior so widespread historically and cross-culturally. And if you want to see a domain where this puzzle is even more pronounced, then we look at extreme rituals. So that puzzle is much more salient uh, when it comes to these rituals. Now, by extreme rituals, I don't mean that uh, it's anything uh, abnormal. There is no uh, insinuation here that there's, there's something wrong with the people who are doing these rituals. If anything, actually, they're attended by a very representative part of the population uh, you have illiterate farmers as well as uh, university students. All members of the community do these rituals. So by extreme ritual, 
What we mean is that if you were to somehow measure the intensity, whether this is psychological uh, arousal or the effort exerted in those rituals or the pain and suffering that they involve, these rituals will be outliers. So things like walking on fire, some of the Shia Muslims rituals that are performed on the, the day of uh, Asura that involve slashing the skin with razors or um, self-flagellation. Tamil Hindus around the world perform a, a lot of these uh, rituals like the Kavadi that involve piercing the skin or walking on fire and so on and so forth. And a lot of these very extreme rituals that involve a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of behaviors that might be seen as posing direct risks to health, things like the possibility of infection or physical trauma or psychological trauma and so on and so forth, a lot of them are actually culturally prescribed remedies for a number of illnesses, and especially those illnesses that don't have clear physical manifestations, so things like mental illness. From courting potential mates to mourning the death of members of a group, some in the animal world also seem to engage in ritual-like behavior. So Doug and I were interested to learn if these types of activities are indeed rituals, and if so, how human rituals differ from those of animals. One useful distinction is that between ritualization or ritualized behavior and then things that are, that are essentially cultural rituals. But even there, the, the boundaries are hard to, to draw. By ritualized behavior, we mean automatic, hardwired responses to uh, things like environmental stressors or things that have direct outcomes, such as mating, which, of course, birds are, are a good example of. There are many other species that have a rich ritual life. And we only recently began to, to know more about the, the, these types of rituals. For example, recent studies conducted by scientists at the Max Planck Institute have shown in recordings in many parts of West Africa, they show uh, chimpanzees visit hollow trees. And sometimes they, they travel uh, significant distances to visit those trees. They carry stones with them and they use them to either drum on those trees or they deposit them inside the trees. And in that paper, the scientists draw a comparison between the, the currents that you see in many parts of the world. So humans stacking rocks one on top of the other. It seems to have some kind of ritual significance. And this is a very ancient human behavior. Chimpanzees seem to be doing the same thing. Elephants, they have their own types of rituals. So they will travel... Uh, for days to visit the bones of their ancestors, especially when it's a, a matriarch, an important member for their society who has passed away. They will, uh, they will travel to their remains every year, and they will pick up the bones and examine them, and they will trumpet together. Uh, so there, there are a lot of behaviors out there that are very similar to what we do. Now, at the same time, there is no other species that performs rituals as compulsively and as intensely as we do, and especially when it comes to cultural rituals. When it comes to collective ritual, then we are definitely uh, the ritual species. One of the annual traditions I always enjoyed when I lived in Pasadena was the decoration of elaborate floats entered into the Rose Parade, a tradition which, since 1890, has celebrated New Year's Day. In the days leading up to the parade, volunteers meticulously cover floats in natural materials, which, if you've ever watched the event on TV or in person, include ample amounts of roses. While, at least by Western standards, the Taipukam Kavadi Festival in the town of Katbon on the island of Mauritius culminates in a much more shocking fashion, the two events share more than a few similarities, as Demetrius describes next. A lot of these rituals are, are so old that their, their traces are lost in time. 
specifically the, the Kavadi ritual, we know that it's already mentioned in the Vedas, so it's very ancient. It's uh, several thousands of, of years old. And today you will find it pretty much everywhere where you have significant numbers of Tamil Hindus in the world. So not just in uh, southern India and other parts of India, but also wherever you have members of the Tamil diaspora, which is uh, Singapore, Sri Lanka, Mauritius, Réunion, but even a lot of Western cities like New York or Montreal, Toronto, Copenhagen, London, wherever you have members of the, of the Tamil diaspora, you will find the, the Kavadi. So the Kavadi is uh, part of a larger festival and it culminates on the, the full moon of the Tamil month of Thai, which is around January to February, depending on the year. And this festival includes a lot of milder hardships, such as fasting, abstaining from meat, which most people do anyway. They're, most of them are vegetarians, but abstaining for other, any other kind of pleasure, uh, perhaps uh, chocolate or sugar, and obviously from sexual activity. Some people would sleep on the floor for those 10 days, and they will spend a substantial amount of time during those 10 days building their Kavadis. And the Kavadi, what gives the, the ritual its name is this structure, which is called the Kavadi, and it literally means burden in Tamil. It's a miniature shrine. Uh, this is built a skeleton of bamboo or, or wood and decorated with uh, flowers and peacock feathers and, and religious uh, symbols. And those Kavadis can weigh sometimes up to 80, 90 pounds. They can be very heavy. So participants will spend several nights building those Kavadis. And on the, the day of the procession, they will all bring them to a riverbank. And everybody comes to, to admire these Kavadis. And meanwhile, the participants will go into the river and perform some cleansing rites. And after these rites are done, they will start getting pierced. We'll hear about this dramatic conclusion of the ritual after this short break. If you are enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods, the curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's science, P-O-D-S, dot com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Just a heads up, this clip contains some graphic descriptions of the Kavadi. So if you're with kids or just aren't in the mood, you might want to skip the next two and a half minutes. For everyone else, here again is Dimitris Zigalatis. So the piercings take place uh, right there at the riverbank. Some individuals might put a single needle through their tongue or through their cheeks or forehead. Some will put several needles all over their face. Some will go as far as to have 500, 600 needles, which covers the, the entire torso, arms, legs, and, and face. There are also other kinds of piercings. Uh, many of them will have hooks, especially in the back or the chest. On those hooks, you have suspended lime fruit or maybe bells or other kinds of jewelry. Some of them will even have uh, skewers and rods, and these rods can be often the size of broomsticks, both in thickness and, and length or even longer, and those will be pierced through both cheeks. And sometimes these rods can be, they're metallic, and they can be so heavy that the individual has to bite down at all times, otherwise they might rip the face off. And once these piercings are in place, then they will take these heavy structures on the shoulders and they start walking barefooted. Some of them even walk on shoes made of nails, of upright, rusty nails. 
The rest of them walk uh, barefooted, which is also very painful because this is the midsummer tropical sun. Mauritius is in the southern uh, hemisphere. So the asphalt is really excruciatingly hot. For me, it's impossible to take a single step on that uh, burning asphalt. And they will do this for six kilometers. And because the procession moves slowly and they stop at every crossroad, a lot of devotees might uh, start dancing or falling into trance. This will take five or six hours to reach the temple. And even when they reach the temple, their ordeal is not over because there are 242 steps up the, the hill to reach the temple. And you have to carry your weight all the way to the top. Other individuals will also, in addition to all of that, uh, drag large chariots. Sometimes they can be the size of a minivan. They drag them behind them by hooks that are attached to the skin of their back. And this will be the only thing that stays behind them, because obviously the chariot cannot go up the stairs. But the Kavadi will. So they have to carry their burden to uh, offer it to the deity, which is Lord Morgan. And once they do that, they have their piercings removed, and only then they can get some rest. Throughout the entire procession, they will have no food, they will have no water. So this is really an entire day of uh, self-imposed suffering. Given the extraordinary pain and suffering that participants experience during the Kavadi, Brian and I wondered how often people commit to participating in the ritual, only to change their minds before climbing the hill to the shrine at the temple. There is no stigma associated with not doing the, the Kavadi. Uh, there, there are some of these uh, rituals that uh, in, in some communities might be uh, mandatory. So when you look at initiation rituals, for example, in many communities, if you don't subject yourself to the suffering that the ritual requires, you might have no place in that community. You're not seen as a suitable mate. You're not seen as part of the society overall. But uh, the kinds of rituals that I study are not like that. And the Kavadi ritual specifically is entirely voluntary, and there's no kind of stigma associated with those who don't do it. Having said that, dropping out of the, of the ritual might be seen as a major source of humiliation. And in fact, in all of the years that I've been studying this ritual, I only saw one man who dropped out of the ceremony. This was somebody who had uh, gone through the piercings. He was carrying a large kavadi on his shoulders and did the entire procession, which lasts for five or six hours, and reached the, the final stage, which is climbing 242 steps up to the Temple of Murugan. And he was maybe three quarters of the way through it. And I could clearly see that he was really having a hard time. He just couldn't bear the, the burden anymore. His, his family members who were accompanying him started getting worried and they asked him to uh, to let them take his burden off him and he refused they even begged him to let them help him and he kept refusing but it was obvious that he wasn't going to be able to make it so he went on his knees trying to gain his strength after maybe 20 minutes eventually he gave up and i could see that he was devastated he, he started crying he looked up the temple and he was only a few steps uh, short, but uh, giving up was, uh, was a major source of distress and humiliation for that one. Our interest peaked. Doug and I were curious whether Demetrius has ever been invited to take part in an extreme ritual himself, and if so, how he handled the situation. I have, actually. Uh, it, it wasn't the Kavadi ritual, but it was a firewalking ritual. And the way it happened is that my informants essentially tricked me into doing it. So I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the, on the firewalking rituals of the Anastenaria, which is a community in northern Greece who performed these rituals in honor of two Christian saints, Constantine and Helen. And then I had studied the firewalking in Spain and other parts of Europe. And whenever I, I, I would give a lecture on this topic, people would 
typically ask me, one of the first questions was, have you done it yourself? And I would have to explain that um, it's not just that I didn't want to, uh, which I didn't. I also wouldn't be able to do it in those communities because this is something only the locals do, only insiders do. Uh, if I requested to participate, it would be seen uh, as a, either as an intrusion or I would have to pretend that I'm making a permanent commitment to these uh, to the saints and I would have to go back and do it every year. And when I eventually didn't return, people would be disappointed. So I didn't want to do that. But when I went to Mauritius to, to study more of these extreme rituals, uh, things were very different. So the members of the local community, as they were making the preparations for, this was the first um, high-intensity ritual that I was going to witness in Mauritius. As they were making the preparations, one day the president of the temple committee called me and he half-jokingly said, Something like, well, now uh, you've been here for a few months now. Uh, you're one of us, so you should uh, also do the firework. And my response was that uh, I don't want to pretend to be one of you. I'm here as an anthropologist. I'm here to learn about your culture. And it's also important for me to be able to observe. So very politely, I, I refused. And I was a, a little bit worried about their reaction, but they were uh, fine with it. Uh, they smiled and they, they said well something like, well, if God wants you to do it, then you will do it. And my response was that, uh, well, trust me, God does not want, want me to walk on fire. <laughs> but apparently that was not true. Uh, so on the day of the ritual, I was uh, following the procession uh, all day. And eventually this is a procession that lasts several hours. And eventually you reach the temple. And in front of the temple, there's a pit, which is full of uh, burning embers glowing red coals and uh, only those who are going to be walking on fire are allowed to be inside so i had permission to be there because i was taking photographs and at some point somebody said this is a better place for you to be and i, I moved closer and it was a better place for me and later as i was looking through my lens somebody tapped me on the shoulder and uh, i said what he said stand up uh, turn around. And I turned around and I, I saw that the entire village was looking at me, waiting for me to cross the fire. So at that point, there was not really much <laughs> much to think about. I just said, please hold my camera. And, and I went through it. And it's certainly very hot. You can feel the heat. Uh, even standing uh, many feet away, you can really f feel your face getting roasted. It's like opening an oven. And walking on it also it feels very, very hot. And there was, there was one step that felt particularly painful, and, and I knew it was going to leave a blister, which it did, but that was it. While it exposes participants to the risk of trauma, scarring, and infection, participation in the Kavadi also has many tangible, although more indirect effects, such as increasing bonding, influencing social hierarchies, and promoting pro-social behaviors. We wanted to hear more from Demetrius about the complex reasons why Tamils and Mauritius choose to take part in this extreme ritual. The Kavadi ritual seems to have several functions for the members of this community. Uh, and we know from other studies uh, as well that it can function as a signal of commitment to the group, and especially for, for males. There's a lot of male signaling and display that is going on there. We see that the average male has something like 70 piercings through their body, where the average female has maybe one. Uh, they carry larger structures. They participate more frequently than, than women. And there have been studies coming from India that show that those who engage uh, more in those types of activity 
they tend to reap social benefits. So then they are then perceived as more trustworthy. They're perceived as more cooperative or as more religious. And in fact, we have a, a recent study, which is, has not been published yet, where we see that they're even perceived as better mates. So it's very interesting to examine the social dynamics of this ritual because you see that different parts of the, uh, of the local population might have different reasons for participating in the ritual. They also uh, describe their participation in, in different terms. Members of the upper castes, the uh, upper classes, they're more likely to say that the, the Kavadi is, uh, is performed uh, as an act of devotion. They're also more likely to say that the type of participation doesn't matter. So you don't have to have 500 needles through your body. Just going through the procession is enough. On the other hand, when we look at people of lower socioeconomic status, we see that for them, uh, participation is often uh, more likely to be connected to a vow, to a request. So they do it because they have specific needs. And those needs are typically connected with their uh, social standing. Sometimes they're connected with uh, health issues. One of the most common requests might be for their children to do well in their academic life, for healing, and so on and so forth. So there is this tension between two different perspectives of this ritual, where those who have more power in the community, they're interested in maintaining this status quo, whereas those who lack power, they're interested in, in using their participation to move up in the, in the social hierarchy of the group. Dimitris leads the Experimental Anthropology Lab at the University of Connecticut. Their research promotes methodological innovation and integration in the study of human behavior by combining in-depth qualitative field research with experimental methods and advanced technological tools. He and his team's aim, while on Mauritius, was to examine the effects of the Cavadi ordeal on participants' physical and psychological well-being, without disturbing the ritual itself. Here, Demetrius explains what was required to recruit residents into his study, which collected data for three weeks before the ritual and another three weeks after it, as well as during their long and painful pilgrimage to the mountain temple itself. Some people have described participant observation, which is the, the key method in anthropology, so ethnographic fieldwork, as deep hanging out. And there's, there's some truth to that. That means that in order to do these kinds of studies, you need to spend considerable time Sometimes anthropologists spend months, sometimes they spend years. I have spent a total of four years in the field combined. And this is necessary because you, you need to get to know the people you're studying. You need to, to get to know their, their everyday uh, worries and desires and ambitions and uh, everything else that is happening in their lives to get a better understanding of what uh, motivates them to do these rituals. And also importantly, you have to, to show them that you're interested in getting uh, your facts uh, straight. So you're not just showing up there for, for a week to write a blog entry. You're there to collect a lot of data, to study their way of life seriously, and to provide a fair representation of what it is that you're studying. This is also necessary in order to conduct any study of the kind that we did that involves getting people during their most sacred moments of their lives well, to bother participating in your study. Why would somebody allow you to to place a monitor under their, their clothes as they're doing their most sacred rituals. You have to at least convince them that you're there to conduct an honest study that will result in a fair representation of the, of the context because they're doing this voluntarily to help you. As anthropologists are concerned with the interactions between people and the relationships among them, 
they undertake fieldwork to understand the complexity of social life. The relationships they develop with participants are therefore essential to the research, and this necessitates that they themselves play an important part in the narratives they construct as part of their research. Due to the many challenges inherent to conducting anthropological field research, we followed up by asking Demetrius how he and his team manage the complexities of this study. These studies are, are really hard to do. They're hard to do because they require an enormous amount of effort and labor, but also because they're structured around a focal event which is a massive event in that community. You have thousands of people participating in those rituals. And it's one of the, the most sacred moments in their lives. You know, the process of recruitment is not the same. Now, you can't uh, just post a, a flyer asking for participants in this study. You have to go door to door to individuals you've already met and interviewed before as an ethnographer, because the, those are the only ones who are going to trust you and, and allow you to conduct these measures. That necessarily means that there's uh, there's some level of self-selection, in our, which is inevitable in our uh, sample. And of course, all samples are self-selected because they all come from those who have volunteered to take part in the study. We can't force them to take part in the study. But this is a bigger issue when we're conducting uh, field studies. So sometimes you have to engage in snowball sampling, which means you find one participant and then you ask them if they know somebody else who might be willing to participate. That too does create some some issues. And other things that might happen in a field study is that you always worry that something will go wrong on the day of the ritual because there's one day and everything depends on, on things going well on that very day. If there's an equipment malfunction during the day of the ritual, then you've lost everything. Uh, even if there's a there's a cyclone approaching the, uh, the island, which one year in one particular study, that was the case. So it was likely that the study might have never happened. These are the kinds of things you have to worry when you're conducting these uh, studies in, in real-life situations. And, of course, with regards to our study, there are also other issues. How do you measure things like religiosity? How do you even measure health? Health is a, is a very complicated thing. So for us, we, we conducted measures that were, a lot of them were opportunistic. An interesting aspect of this study is that, in addition to collecting qualitative data through prolonged engagement with the people of Capborn, Demetrius and his team also unobtrusively collected various quantitative data points as well. This mixed methodological approach added valuable objective measurements on markers of participants' autonomic nervous and immune system responses, allowing for a fuller examination of the ritual in its natural context. For this particular study, because we were interested in the health effects of the, of the ritual, we used ethnographic data, we used psychometric data, standardized instruments that are meant to assess people's subjective health and well-being and quality of life, and we also used physiological data. So we had medical monitoring devices. They're wearable, they're portable, and they're very unobtrusive. They're the size of a, of a wristwatch, and they're actually lighter than your average wristwatch. So people can wear them on the arm as an armband, which means that they're not visible to outsiders. Uh, and that's very important as well. In the context of a sacred ritual, you don't want to cause any interruption. Of course, just by virtue of us being there, we're aware that we are, we're always influencing people's behavior to some extent. But we try to minimize this by using these devices that are they're, they're so unobtrusive that people forget they have them on. And in fact, every time we visited them, we, we often had to remind them to take them off. So these devices will record things like sleep quality. They will record stress levels by assessing the uh, electrodermal activity of our participants and all sorts of control variables like ambient temperature as well as body temperature. 
and they can go for a week on a single charge. So every week we would visit them and we would get additional measurements. We would get things like blood pressure and heart rate and we would download the data. And this was also the opportunity to conduct interviews and surveys for them. So we really had a whole arsenal of mixed methods for this study. As you might expect, the data confirmed that participation in the Kabaddi is not only painful, but also extremely stressful, particularly on the day of the ritual, when it was far higher than any other day before or after it. But what were the impacts on participants' perceptions of their physical and psychological well-being after the ritual? Here's how Demetrius summarizes his team's findings about those measures. Obviously, we wouldn't claim that you, you can perform a ritual and magically be healed, let's say, by, from, from diabetes. So when we did the study, we're indeed expecting that we wouldn't see any physiological effects of the ritual, but we did expect to see psychological effects, because if people around the world have these similar experiences, then I think as researchers, we, we shouldn't just dismiss them. We should take them seriously and, and try to put them to the test. So what we see in this study, first of all, it's very interesting to see who is drawn to those ceremonies. Just like I've seen in Greece and just like I've seen in other parts of the world and other anthropologists have seen, those individuals who are uh, suffering from a number of stressors, let's say things like chronic illness, and especially psychological illness, or social uh, marginalization, so individuals have lower social status, socioeconomic status, they're not only more likely to take part in the ceremony, so they do it more frequently, uh, but when they take part, they engage in more intense forms. At first, that might seem surprising, because if you're already ill and frail, then you shouldn't be putting dozens or hundreds of needles through your body. But that's exactly what's happening. And then when we look at how uh, ritual intensity differentially affects psychological well-being, we don't see any physiological differences. We don't see that this ritual actually causes a decrease, let's say, in blood pressure. But we do see that after performing this ritual, a few weeks later, participants perceive better subjective health and quality of life. And in fact, those individuals who suffer the most during the ritual, we know that the more piercings in their body and the more, the more they've suffered, the more pain they've experienced and the more stress during the ritual, the more pronounced the, the benefits. And we know this both because we have measures of stress, physiological measures of stress, which are orders of magnitude higher than anything that happens in their everyday life, and because we measure the number of piercings in their body. So subjective health and well-being increases more for those who have suffered the most. And this is the most counterintuitive finding, uh, I think, in our study. While many of us might be interested in rituals that take place in far-off and perhaps exotic locations, most of us are also unlikely to ever actually experience them ourselves, either as a participant or an observer. So we asked Demetrius what he sees as the value of understanding extreme rituals, though the majority of us will never encounter them ourselves. So the main thing we should take away from this is that when people make claims about their own lived experience that might seem paradoxical, we shouldn't be quick to dismiss them without at least testing them. I don't think there's enough research of this kind, research that, as some philosophers have put it, front loads phenomenology. So starting with some of the claims that our participants make about their lives, taking them seriously enough to actually turn them into testable hypotheses. In the case of rituals specifically, because these extreme rituals are so widespread, both historically and synchronically, that gives us yet another reason to study them and learn something about human nature. And there's another line of research showing that we make assumptions about the value of our experience based on how much effort these experiences require. 
So another takeaway is that human beings are complicated and they're, they're definitely not the kind of hyper-rational profit maximizers that some theories of human behavior uh, would have them be. Meaning that a lot of what creates pleasure, happiness, or meaning in our lives sometimes has to do with things like suffering because we draw value from suffering. People go and they volunteer to run marathons. Why? If you ask me, a marathon is just self-imposed torture. There's no health benefit. If anything, definitely if you're not fit enough, running a marathon might be a health risk. People engage in uh, in things like uh, bungee jumping. They, they seek extreme levels of arousal, even fear. And, and yet, when we come to evaluate these experiences, this will show up as being some of the most meaningful and important experiences in our lives. In studying extreme rituals, in every society that have been studying those rituals, people unanimously, essentially, agree that these experiences, these painful rituals, are the most meaningful ritual events of their lives. Some, some of them will go as far as to say that they're the most meaningful events in their lives, period. That was Dimitris Zigalatis discussing his open access article, Effects of Extreme Ritual Practices on Physiopsychological Well-Being, which he published with six other researchers on August 30th, 2019 in the journal Current Anthropology. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e62, along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. Did you know that Parsing Science also tweets news about the latest developments in science every day, including many brought to our attention by listeners like you? You can follow us at Parsing Science. And the next time you spot a science story that fascinates you, let us know, and we might just feature the study's researchers in a future episode. Next time, in episode 63 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Susan Gelman from the University of Michigan. She'll discuss her research into the use of generic language in scientific papers, which is especially problematic if researchers are overgeneralizing from selective or limited samples. That's the beauty of generics. You don't have to say all. And in fact, you have plausible deniability because if someone said, well, all people, you know, blah, 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 then you say, oh, I didn't say all people. I just said people. We hope that you will join us again.